One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We have reached the end of the first week of our newfound freedom, ladies and gentlemen, and guess what? We are all still here. Uh, we have not experienced any shortages of food, we haven't run out of aspirin or insulin, and our democracy appears to be entirely intact. And before anyone starts bleating on about how we haven't actually left yet, just remember this. We were told of impending doom and disaster if we voted to leave in 2016. Economic collapse was predicted if we invoked Article 50. We were warned that we would never recover uh, if we signed a Brexit withdrawal bill. And of course, they said it was the biggest gamble in the history of the world. Oh well, the weekend is looming, and we're not even talking about Brexit anymore. We've got far bigger fish to fry. Shemima Begum is in the news. Philip Schofield is in the news. And of course, instead, we're going to go back to the properly important issues of the day, such as the front page of the Times today, in which it is revealed that the police in this country have been rumbled by the general public, their words, uh, basically for their failure to do their jobs properly. Now, only this week, I've been praising the bravery and efficiency of the armed response squads who shot a terrorist dead on the streets of South London. But clearly, the rest of the force is not in such rude health. We're going to find out why, and we're going to try and figure out what we can do about it uh, in the company of Dal Babu, former superintendent of the Metropolitan Police. And of course, we want to hear from you. 0344 499 1000. Coming up, we're finding out just who is going to the House of Lords and why. How a troubled young man who warned his carers that he wanted to throw someone off a tall building was actually allowed to do so, and why we all now love the North of England. Well, most of us, anyway. 0344 499 1000. Plus, because it's Friday, it's time for another sparkling edition of the Perry Rewards. An homage to my brilliance in broadcasting. You're listening to me and watching me live on YouTube, live on Facebook, and live streaming on Twitter as well, right here on the fastest-growing radio station in the world. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, this is a story that we are all terribly familiar with, a story that always invokes an awful lot of telephone calls from you guys to tell me about what has happened in your particular case, in your particular neighbourhood, uh, and in your particular homes. If you get burgled, you're very, very unlikely to ever get any of the stuff back. If you have your car stolen, you're pretty unlikely to ever get that back. If you have your bike stolen, you've got no chance, really, uh, of getting anything other than a police insurance, a crime number, so you can claim insurance. Charges for assault without injury in 2015-16 amounted to 11.8% uh, of those reported crimes. It's now down to 6.1% in the last year. Domestic burglary, which was charged at the rate of 7.6%, now down to 4.2%. Theft of a motor vehicle, 7.6% in 2015-16, down to 3.5%. And overall, crimes uh, charged 
go from 13.1% uh, all the way down to 7.8%. It's a pretty low number. It's a pretty poor show. Let's talk to Dal Babu to find out what's gone wrong. Dal, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Thanks very much for joining us. Now, listen, it was only a few days ago that I was praising the police for doing a fantastic job, not just uh, in dealing with that terrorist in Streatham, uh, but also, of course, dealing with the terrorist on London Bridge. You know, the, the armed response squads are brilliant. They seem to be able to operate very quickly. They are incredibly efficient, incredibly well um, uh, sort of, you know, disciplined. And yet the rest of the force seems to be languishing far away behind. Well, I was a firearms commander, uh, and I must say, when you're dealing with firearms, you have a huge amount of resources at your fingertips. Yeah. Uh, so, so I, th I think you know that we're looking at um, a part of the service that has doesn't hasn't suffered the cutbacks, and in fact has had an increase in the number of resources. I, I don't think you can uh, shy away from the reality of the situation. We've lost across the country 23,000 police officers, 18,000 police uh, support staff. So that's you know, the intelligence officers your community support officers, officers that would, uh, members of staff that would help police establish who's committing the crimes, where to go, where to patrol, who to, um, who's no door to knock on at four o'clock in the morning. Yeah. So there's been massive reductions. And I think you can't have uh, public safety on the cheap. You, you have to have uh, resources, you have to have people. And I, 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 and I would, um, it's interesting your introduction, I would challenge anybody to say that they haven't had personal experience or friend or family experience where they're trying to report a crime and they've had some huge difficulties. I personally, uh, I live in North London, I personally had some real difficulties where some of my elderly neighbours were scammed. Uh, and I personally had to, and this was after I'd uh, retired from the police, right. I personally had to phone up uh, the, the, the thugs that had tried to rip off some of my uh, really? uh, elderly neighbours uh, because it was hopeless trying to get the police interested. Yeah, so what um, did you actually do then? Well, it was a 92-year-old woman that knocked on her door, got her to sign a contract to say that she needed her roof uh, um, doing, and they sort of said it was £2,500, but uh, that it, there's nothing wrong with that roof. Uh, so I phoned them up, told them that uh, the police were coming around in the morning and there would, there'd be a reception committee to meet them. We never saw them again. Really? They never never turned up. They left tarpaulin and some bricks. Yeah. This particular gang had been operating in several other um, uh, houses because uh, I subsequently saw them trying to scam uh, other people. Mm. And they would, what they would do is they'd go in for an offer of two two and a half thousand pounds and then people would end up paying thirty, forty thousand pounds. Uh, for work that was unnecessary. Right. Now, I just you give you that as an example. We're trying to get police to be interested and sort of follow it up, and and the police were saying no, this is a civil dispute, and the local authority was saying this is a police matter. Right. Uh, so so it it was it was a bit of a nightmare. And uh, to, to be perfectly honest, if I hadn't made that phone call and sort of told them that the police would be waiting, and actually trying to get police to turn up in the morning would have been nine impossible yes uh, it, and what is the reason enough. what is the reason for that uh, Dal is it because they just don't physically have enough people or is it because they're prioritising different things uh, I think it's probably a combination of both mm. uh, so you know the police have been criticised very very heavily for not dealing with vulnerable people so there's a lot more focus on dealing with vulnerable people but also I think that the resources are down I mean I, when I was a borough commander I had six people on each of the wards so you had those individuals that would be collecting intelligence, whether it's around terrorism, around antisocial behaviour. Uh, there'd be six of them dedicated to a particular ward. Uh, now you've probably got one or two. Uh, so the cutbacks have ha happened in neighbourhood policing. So the resources has, have uh, plummeted. You know, the, it has a big impact. And and the other factor is it, it takes time to train police officers. I, I mean, I've 
I, I mean, I'm still uh, involved in uh, policing and I listen to new recruits. And you think, well, you know what, you're a little bit uh, green. You, you need to sort of really get much more um, assertive, uh, much more, be, be a little bit more confident. Mm. But that doesn't come overnight. You need time to be able to establish. I mean, I was exactly the same. You know, when I started policing Tottenham, you, 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 you're a little bit naive. You don't really know what's going on. You learn from your mistakes. But now you don't have the kind of training that we had. So when I joined, I had 20 weeks uh, training. I had a brilliant guy called uh, Tony Warby, who was my um, parent constable. He just taught me everything. He was a very fantastic guy. I learned so much from him. Nowadays, you do a lot of your training online. You're sort of thrown in at the deep end, and you, you end up being a senior constable with a couple of years' service. Yeah, right. How about this? I've got a, a message here on the YouTube feed. We are live on YouTube streaming as well. The breakdown in law and order, says Tad, has been getting worse for years. Then we get a goody-goody, criminal-loving, blinkered Home Secretary in Theresa May who wrecks it completely. Now, I don't know what your view of Theresa May is. Personally, I, I don't really mind. I don't really care what your view of her is. But uh, is she to blame for a lot of this? When she from Not from when she was Prime Minister, but from when she was Home Secretary and she got a terrible reception, I seem to remember, at that police uh, conference. No, that's right. At the Police Federation conference, she she told the police to stop crying wolf. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, the chickens have come home to roost because the Police Federation was saying crime is going to go up. Right. And she said, stop crying wolf. And actually, that was the reality. Well, I mean, there's a number of things that Theresa May has done, which was which showed a, a phenomenal level of naivety. Uh, for example, police bail was um, changed. It's now um, released under investigation. Right. And, and that's caused huge kind of difficulties because sometimes you would need bail, extended bail, in order to manage uh, um, suspects. Right. Uh, and now you have release under investigation, which doesn't have bail conditions. So that, I mean, that's one thing that she's un under her watch. She introduced the whole concept of having less uh, police resources. Uh, and, and again, that was sort of under her watch. She did direct entry. So you could be, you know, Joe Public walking on the street and then suddenly you're a superintendent yeah. in, the, in the police. You know, um, you know, it's a bit like having you know somebody walking down the street, and you suddenly say, oh, "You know what? I fancy being a heart surgeon." And you're <laughs> to be heart yeah, surgeon. right. It so, is ridiculous, isn't it? The other thing I seem to remember happening, Dal, and you correct me if I'm wrong. I seem to remember there was a bit of a hoo-ha years ago when the police announced they were going to hire a load of civilians, effectively, to work behind the scenes, to work in police stations, to kind of do a lot of the the donkey work, the sort of the admin that police officers were having to do. Whatever happened to that plan? Did that ever happen? Well, we, we've lost 18,000 police staff, so I think it went exactly the uh, opposite direction. And you know what? There's a, there's a lot of jobs you don't need the power of arrest to have. The constable has the power of arrest. There's lots of jobs that people can be doing um, uh, in, you know, in back office type of roles. Uh, but, you know, the, the, you just can't have policing on the cheap. You've got to invest. Uh, I mean, I feel very, very sorry uh, for the, the police officers, the local officers, because I know they're, they're running around like headless chickens. They've got so much more to do. They've got so much less resources. They haven't had the training. They, they don't really have a, an understanding of complexity. And sometimes, you know, when you know, when I was uh, investigating, you'd sort of look at something and you say, right, I'm, I'm going to make the phone call. That's the end of that. And you'd actually make a judgment call. Mm. Uh, sometimes people just don't have that confidence to be able to do that and then focus on the crimes that you're likely to uh, investigate right. and, and be successful. And you read out some really startling statistics. Very startling. I was uh, going to bring, bring you on to that because the overall sort of charge sheet, if you like, 7.8% of crimes reported mm. result in charges. That's terribly low, isn't it? It is. And for some crimes, it's even lower. So, you know, for things like rape, you know, you're looking at... Uh, Three or you know two percent in some areas, so so it almost becomes a postcode lottery. Mm. You, you, it depends on not to 
the service as a whole. It's, it depends on the individual who you report the matter to, whether they're going to investigate it, whether they have that experience and that understanding. So, you know, going back to my experience with, uh, you know, local neighbours, you know, like, you know how, how the police didn't get hold of that uh, and sort of run with it is, is just beyond me. And certainly when I was a borough commander, when we had a similar situation where people turned up, it, it used to be um, driveways, it's now roofs. Mm. That, uh, that, that oh, is that right? Yeah. Operate. Uh, they just basically, you know, you, you sort of, you, you understand that, you know, somebody is being scammed, somebody is vulnerable. And actually, that, those kind of crimes are going to get worse and worse because yeah. we've got more and more older people uh, you know, who are in, in properties. They may have been there for years and, and they're seen as rich pickings for uh, some of these uh, individuals. Sure. But ultimately, I think what we need to do is have an honest debate, understand that we uh, we, we constantly have in police in the reinvention um, cycle where basically... The police have resources, they reduce crime, and then uh, governments take those resources away. And that's exactly what Theresa May did. Uh, it's exactly what's been done in the past. And then basically crime goes up and then there's a big hue and cry and then we put more resources in there. I think there's got to be an understanding that you need to have a consistent level of funding and support for police officers. Uh, and, and like you, I, I sort of, I've seen the armed response officers dealing with terrorism and you think, well, you know, that's a good aspect yes. of uh, policing but they need to have those resources and they are the only group that has had an increase in resources. Uh, other other parts like neighbourhood policing, which is the bedrock of policing because it's all about intelligence, has been cut to the bone. Exactly right. And what do you think it, would it take, um, Dal, for the rest of the police to become as good as the armed response units? Well, part of it is resources. So uh, it's about the training. It's about, uh, you know, we perhaps need to go back and revisit some of the online training that's been done at the moment. You know, it's all, it's all been done to reduce costs. But ultimately, you've got to have uh, police officers trained properly, have sufficient numbers of police officers, and make sure that the public have that confidence. Because at the moment, I think most people will have a story to tell about trying to report a crime and being turned away. Yeah, exactly right. And as far as the actual, um, you know, level of response inside a police station, I mean, one of the things that I've always been amazed at, and this has happened to a couple of police stations near me in London, they've just been shut down, you know? There now is no police station. So, you know, it's no wonder there aren't any cops anywhere. Well, I mean, this is, this is the other thing, you know, it's, it's all very well talking about increasing the number of police officers. You need to put the police officers somewhere. They need to be uh, on a uh, go... Uh, yeah, so where are they all? Well, exactly, and I don't think that's been thought through because you know there's been police stations have been sold sold off. But you've also got to have, in addition to that, you've also got to have their equipment. So mm. if you look at the average, you now when I joined, you had a sort of old Storno radio and a, a truncheon, and that's right. it. Whereas now police officers will have uh, tasers, they will have uh, uh, truncheons, they'll have much more sophisticated radios. Pepper they'll spray, they've got haven't they? Some of them. Absolutely. So it's a, a protective equipment. Yeah. Uh, handcuffs. They'll have a belt. You know, belt, and also um, body armor. You know. So all of that stuff has to be put somewhere. So mm. you know, there's some practical elements of when, if you increase in the police numbers of where you're going to put these police officers, where you're going to put their equipment, where they're going to patrol from. Uh, and what we've done is we've we've ended up selling the family silver, mm. and now we're going to have to try and get those uh, services back, those stations back. Um, a lot of them have been sold. You know, yes. It's, uh, at, at the at the 
the trough of the property market. It's absolutely unbelievable, really, if you think about it like that. Listen, Dal, appreciate your time. Thanks very much indeed. Dal Babu, former superintendent of the Metropolitan Police. I need to hear your stories, people, because I know you've got them, because everybody is a victim of crime at one time or another in their life. Um, maybe it was just as bad always back in, you know, 20 years ago. Maybe you can tell me a story from then, uh, or you can tell me that it was better then, because when you did actually report a burglary, they actually did come round, and they actually did manage to fingerprint the place, and they actually did manage to capture somebody. But generally speaking, unless it's a very high-profile case and somebody gets leaned on, unless it is something uh, that involves uh, a sort of sensitive matter, uh, unless it appears to involve somebody famous, then you just don't get it. You just do not get the service from the police that you pay for, that you deserve, and that you should expect, quite frankly. 0344 499 1000 is the number. Don't forget, you can text us at 87222 as well. Start your text with the word TALK. That'll cost you 25p plus your standard network rate. You can follow us, of course, as well on Twitter, at Talk Radio, at IROMG. Coming up, we're going to be talking about Shemima Begum. We're going to be talking about Philip Schofield. We're going to be talking about all the big stories of the day, because this is what we do here at The Voice uh, of the Common People and the voice of common sense. This is Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. We've got lots to do. David Spencer is here to talk us through a couple of the big stories this morning. In addition to the breaking news about Philip Schofield, we've got breaking news about Shemima Begum. Uh, we've got an incredible piece of audio that I want you to hear about Jonty Bravery. He's the guy uh, who pleaded guilty to hurling a child basically off the roof of Tate Britain. Um, some months ago. Um, quite a chilling piece of audio, which might be quite upsetting to some of you, so I'm going to give you a little bit of a warning before we listen to it. But before we do that, let's go back to the phones and hear some police stories and talk to James, uh, who's in Telford. Hi, James. Good morning, Chief. Good morning, sir. How, how are you? Show and your viewing figures. Thank you very much indeed. What can you tell me? Uh, regarding police, and it's going to lead on, I can try and condense it as much as I can, right. and it will also lead on to early release. Okay. So, I'm 46 years old, I'm a salesman, I've never been in trouble with the police except for this one time. We moved to a new area, because I was a bit of a maverick salesman, and I went wherever the money was. Yeah. So we went, moved to a new area, and the local gang of youth took exception to us because I had quite a flash car, mm. the business had one as well, and we had nice things. Right. Now, they used to congregate outside our house saying they were going to do this and do that and beat me up and burn the house down. They keyed my car, they keyed the missus' car, they did loads of stuff. And for about a year, I was constantly on the phone to the police. This is happening, this is happening, right. these are the guys that are doing it, what are you going to do about right. it? And they said, well, until something serious happens, we can't really, really? do anything. We can't I mean, really do anything. Because I've heard them say before, until a crime is committed, we can't yeah, do anything. But they're now saying, we, and until, what, do they, what do they regard as something serious? You're getting your head staved in. Anyway, so the, 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 on this one particular day, I phoned the police, said, look, they're out, they're just, my missus has just come home in tears. They said they're going to burn the house down. Sorry, we can't do anything until they actually do something. So I, I was that worried. I phoned my parents and said, look, Mum, Dad, this is going on. Can you put me up? Oh, you can't be that serious. They didn't listen to me. The next day, it all kicked off. We all ended up, me and these three lads, we bumped into each other. There were three of them, there was one of me. We had a big fight, the police turned up, they ran me over, they arrested all of us. We all ended up in hospital, being cut, stitched up where I'd been slashed with a knife and all the rest of it. Now, because there was three of them in the locality and it was just me, the police refused my bail on the grounds that there might be a breach of the peace if we met up with each other. Right. So even though the three other lads <laughs> were the offenders, they decided to refuse my bail because it was easier for them. Right. So, so well, but on the grounds it's easier to do one than three? Yeah, it was easier to keep me away from them three than it was to keep them three away from me, sort of thing. It was cheaper, obviously, right. wasn't it? It wasn't to keep me inside. I eventually 
got sentenced to four years in jail. Really? And nothing happened to them. Well, for a fight? Yeah, for a fight. That's ridiculous. I, I, isn't fortunately, it? Fortunately, Mike, I went to the uh, Court of Appeal and they found in my favour and I ended up only doing six months when I was out. Oh, OK. Because, I mean, you know, it sounds to me, it sounds to me, James, I mean, obviously, you know, you were incredibly provoked and that's why you ended up getting into that situation, which is probably unwise for a lot of people. However, um, you know, that sounds to me like nothing more than happens uh, down at the New Den every weekend when Millwall we'll, we'll, we'll play at home. Exactly, Mike. And, and the, worst, the worst thing is, Mike, that when it was up for court, my parents are quite wealthy, so we hired Shapiro, who's quite a well-known QC. Helen Shapiro? Uh, no, a, a fella called Shapiro, big right. fat fella. You see him on the news every now and then. Uh, okay. uh, he, he said, don't worry, because of all the mitigation. We'd even got the phone calls that I'd left, the recorded messages that I'd left the police. We'd got all that as evidence. The CPS moved my court from where I was supposed to be being tried to somewhere else on the morning of the trial so my QC couldn't appear and defend me. Right. Because he was somewhere else. I, like I say, I got sentenced to four years. Now, when I arrived in jail, because I'm now a violent offender, yes. they said there's no way you can be released early on tag because violent offenders aren't allowed out early on tag. It's all right if you're a terrorist, though. You can come out as quick as you like. Whilst in jail, Mike, everyone has a job. Everyone is on a course except for drug addicts. Right. So let's not have it that they just sit about all day watching telly. They don't. Mm. Everyone's on the course. Everyone's in work. Okay. And they need that so they can use the phone and buy the bits because you get more money to spend if you're in work. Right. Now, eventually, after four months went past, the guy from the probation service came to see me. He said, do you want to go home early on tag? I said, I'm not allowed. I'm a violent offender. He said, it doesn't matter. You're in Birmingham now. We'll get you home tomorrow. So I had to sit in front of a probation officer we got on the day before my release, and they were saying to me, all the lefties, lovely stuff, no, you wouldn't do this again, would you? You'd approach it differently, blah, blah, blah. And I had to sit there and be honest and yeah. say, to be honest with you, no, I would do exactly the same thing again. Right. I'd, I'd contact the police, I'd let them know what was going on, and if I felt that my family was in danger, I'd have to take the law into my own, own hands. And despite the fact that I'd said that, they still released me the next day on tech. <laughs> This is turning into like an episode of the Shawshank Redemption, James. But listen, thank you very much for telling us that story. It is remarkable when you find yourself in the heart of the justice system, uh, having to deal with the police at close quarters, having to deal with justice, lawyers, judges. I mean, it really is quite an eye-opener. So many of you uh, have got stories like that. Do call us and tell us, please. 0344 499 1000. Hi. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk radio. Now, how many times have you asked yourself, when will I see a member of the House of Lords doing something that I would like them to do for me? When will I see somebody from the House of Lords actually representing me? When will I see the House of Lords actually doing something which is akin to their job? And even, what is their actual job? Let's talk to Sir Alistair Graham, because he will be able to answer all of these questions. Sir Alistair, very good morning to you. Good morning. Thank you very much for joining us. Now, the House of Lords is a very fine institution. I'm not one of those who thinks that we should abolish it altogether, but it does seem to have got rather expansive in recent years. Yes, it's reached a rather absurd situation where... Uh, as you mentioned earlier, over 800 pe- uh, members in the House of yeah. Lords, whereas most second parliamentary chambers throughout the world don't have any more than at most of 200. So 800 is really a great extravagance we can ill afford, in my view. Well, quite. And as far as the uh, current sort of crop of people who are being suggested as, as possible new members of the House of Lords, do you have any difficulties with John Burko, for example, going up into the uh, into the second chamber for whatever reason? Um, you know, there are those who say that he was not as neutral as he should have been. There are others who say, while these bullying allegations are, uh, are about, he shouldn't really be uh, given that particular privilege. Somebody like um, Kenneth Clark, I don't think anyone will have an issue with. But what about people who give money to political parties? You know, where's your... You know, is, is there a sort of a hard and fast rule about this? No, there isn't a hard and fast uh, rule. Uh, though the, uh, anybody who's nominated has to be considered by the House of Lords Commission to see if uh, it is appropriate for them to be uh, uh, made a member of the House of Lords. But I think the worry is that you can... Uh, and it's not just this government, pre- but previous governments, that you can donate your way to the House of Lords. Yeah. If you make large donations to political uh, parties, uh, then very often that party, uh, because they're grateful for the money, will put your name forward for the House of Lords. Well, that's really uh, almost a semi-corrupt way of approaching membership of the House of Lords. Well, I think so. And Peter Crudders, who's the name currently in the frame, donated £50,000 to Boris Johnson's campaign for the Tory leadership, is one of 28 people that the Prime Minister has recommended as Tory peers. He's donated more than three million quid to the Tories since 2007. But he was also uh, forced to resign as the co-treasurer of the party uh, after he offered undercover reporters access to the Prime Minister in exchange for £250,000. Yes, well, the whole thing stinks, doesn't it? Yeah. uh, I uh, mean, should there be, in in, in the words of the old-fashioned sort of clubby kind of thing, should there be a a possibility that that people could blackball somebody? And you just, you know, you used to have that old thing where if somebody put a blackball into the bag, then it was no. Well, I I mean, I, I think we should, as you said earlier, concentrate on how can we reduce the House of Lords? Uh, And it seems to me it's not unreasonable to put some sort of age limit uh, in terms of uh, uh, being in the House of Lords and to 
appoint people for a fixed term, yeah. something like five years, mm. so that after the five years they, they have to leave the House of Lords, and you would then get a constant influx of fresh people, perhaps more effectively representing the diversity of the United Kingdom. Yes, exactly right. And what about the possibility of making it into um, a much smaller organisation? Because as you say, when you look around the world, I mean, when you look at India, for example, and you see that their Congress has fewer representatives than we have in ours, you just think, well, there's something wrong here. When you look at the Senate in America, you know, they've got 100 senators, two for every state. You know, we've got 650 MPs plus 800 or more lords. I mean, it's beggar's belief how many people we've got representing the people. It, it does, and uh, everybody keeps talking about reform, but nobody does anything. Mm. Um, I mean, the only small piece of reform which is welcome is that people can stand down from the House of Lords now, whereas one time it was automatically for, for life. Uh, so I, I think my suggestions of an age limit and appointing people for a fixed period could quite, over a reasonable period of time, could dramatically reduce the size of the House of Lords. Yes. And we should set a target to get it down to, I think, maximum number should be about 200. Yes, I think you're absolutely right. Well, I would certainly support that campaign because one of the things I think that I find amazing, and I was told this by a, a, a previous Lord Chancellor, he said, actually, the real impediment to, to reform of the House of Lords is actually the House of Commons because what the House of Commons doesn't want is for the Lords to become any more influential than it is now. So, for example, if it was an elected chamber, I think they would fear that they would lose some of their kind of um, their influence, if you like. Well, I think a second chamber is important because it gives them an opportunity to have second thoughts about the detail of some of the legislation. Yeah. Uh, and to be fair to the House of Lords, those who take an active part, and not all of the members do, but those who take an active part, do crawl over the legislation passed by the House of Commons and very often come up with very practical, sensible amendments. Yes which are subsequently accepted by the House of Commons because they're common sense. Quite. And what about the uh, situation, uh, which is currently the case, that um, we've, they may have to move the House of Commons and the House of Lords out of Westminster while they refurbish it? Could that be an opportunity maybe to kind of say to them, why don't you just forget about the House of Lords and the size of it? You could only move, say, to a place that, that, that actually incorporates space for 200 people and see how that goes. Well, <laughs> it's an idea, but you would have to work out on what basis do you, do you choose the people who do participate. Yeah. I mean, I'm in favour of uh, Parliament getting out of London uh, and being seen and involving uh, people in the Midlands and the North. Yeah. And as somebody lives in the North. I would very much welcome that. Yeah, because I think there's 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 quite a bit of feeling. In fact, we're going to be talking later on about how apparently the, the, the people in this country's view of the north of England has changed over the years. And, and actually now many more people are at least thinking about the north of England uh, and liking the north of England and, and thinking about putting more things up there. But, you know, I mean, where would you where could you put it? Because if you went to Manchester, everyone would say, oh, well, of course, Manchester's already got everything. Birmingham, they would probably say the same. I mean, could you go as far north as Newcastle and put it there? Yeah, well, why not? <laughs> Somebody who went to school in Newcastle and was born in Northumberland. Yeah. I, I, 
I'm sure there are the facilities and buildings available, uh, for example, for the House of Lords uh, to be up there. And uh, the House of Commons is going to, as I understand, they're going to have to move out of the building. Yes, I believe what? so, yeah, because it's yes, in a terrible... Yes. I mean, you'll know better than anyone. It's in a terrible mess uh, inside the Houses of Parliament. I mean, it's so old and, and decrepit that, um, I mean, I'm not, sure if, I'm not sure if parts of it can be repaired. Well, I hope so. I mean, it is a national monument, which I think we have to preserve. Yes. It's a, it's a key part of our history uh, and uh, tradition, and... I do think it's worth getting the building uh, right and fulfilling its original purpose. But in the meanwhile, let's take a, a, an approach of devolution of power in this country. And uh, the Prime Minister says he's very committed to that, given he won uh, some of the traditional Labour seats in the north of England. Yeah. So we should take what's you know, an expensive proposition into a positive way of how we want to govern Britain in the future. Yes, and if you were to put a, and I don't know if you've worked this out, if you were to put, say, a ceiling on the age limit of how old you could be in the House of Lords, and say you made it, I don't know, 65, how many people do you think would fall off the uh, back of the log, as it were? A very large number. <laughs> a very large number. <laughs> well, I think you'd have to be a bit more than 65. I think something like 75 might be. Really? You yeah, see, I, I find it remarkable that we're even having this conversation. I mean, because once you're... I mean, I'm not saying that you're worthless once you reach the age of 75, but you should be taking it easy, you should be retiring, you shouldn't be uh, worried about going to work in the House of Lords once a week or twice a week or something like that, should you? Well, given how much uh, uh, longer we're living, uh, I myself didn't retire till I was 73. Right. Uh, so... Uh, I, th I think uh, something like 75 uh, would be a very sensible uh, age limit and would allow for the Kenneth Clarks of this world and people like that to make a contribution to a second chamber. Yeah, and if you had an old an, an upper age limit, would you also have a lower one? Because I personally think it's a really bad idea to allow somebody like Jo Swinson, who's failed at her uh, attempt to get re-elected uh, at the last election, she should suddenly be allowed into the House of Lords because she was head of the Liberal Democrats for nine and a half nanoseconds. No, I don't think I would put a lower because I'm anxious to see more young people involved in politics. Mm rather than uh, the white middle-aged who uh, tend to be the bulk of them at the moment. And, you know, I, w I, I think we want to encourage some younger people. And that could bring a, <coughs> excuse me, a freshness to the House of Lords, which perhaps it currently lacks. Yeah, OK. Well, it's a fascinating uh, time anyway, Sir Alistair. Thank you very much indeed. Sir Alistair Graham, they're talking about reform of the House of Lords. Should it have an upper age limit? I think it should have a lower age limit as well. I don't want anybody in there uh, who's sort of under 45. Why would you want anybody in there who's under 45? It's the House of Lords. It's the old fuddy-duddies chamber. But I think it has to, has to, as Sir Alistair says, come down from over 800 people down to about 200. And I think the best way to do that is when it moves out of Westminster because they have to eventually, you know, somehow refurbish the place, just say... There's only 200 spaces, first come, first serve. Get on a train. Uh, we're going to be up in Newcastle. If you get there, uh, you'll get a seat. If you arrive too late, you won't. That's the way to do it, isn't it? And a bit like musical chairs. If you don't get a seat, you're out. Bye-bye. This is Talk Radio. 
Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Quite a lot of you seem to be quite keen on the idea of moving the House of Lords up north, uh, possibly to York, possibly to Durham, uh, possibly to Blackpool. You know, the coast up there on the northwest of England uh, has got plenty of facilities, many of you are telling me. Uh, let's go to the phones and talk to Gerard, uh, who's in crew. Hello, Gerard. Good morning, Michael. Good morning, I sir. Told you earlier, I said earlier in the week that nothing would change regarding the House of Lords, and <laughs> that in 10 years' time, the size of it would have doubled. Yes. And at the, this current rate, I think I might be proven right in five years' time. Well, do you know what? I mean, surely to God, they're going to have to get to a point where it's a five risk, isn't it? Well, I think what will probably happen, Michael, rather than move themselves up north, they'll ask the House of Commons to move out so we can accommodate the rest of the House of Lords <laughs> in there. The thing. I love this idea of, of sort of starting pistol time, though, and going, right, we'll see you all at 10 o'clock Monday morning in Newcastle. Uh, those of you who get there first will get the seats. After 200 are filled, that's your lot, and you're all fired. <laughs> Not going to happen. They like to have that nice little lifestyle in London and all the expenses. Look, Michael, when you think about it, turkeys don't vote for Christmas. That's very true. This is the only way. I'm not going to have a go at the Conservative Party because I vote that way, but the, the Labour Party is just as guilty. Yeah. Peter Crude, as you mentioned, and how much money he gave. So he gave his private money to the Conservative Party. Mm. Well, they've got to repay him back somehow, so what better way to do it than use taxpayers' money by stuffing him into the House of Lords so he can get it back at 350 quid a day? I know. I'm I mean, sure the thing is... It's, it, but, but it's, it's a nice reward. Yeah, but it's not about the money for these guys. I think the Tory party are concerned, because one of the things that has happened over the years is the Lib Dems have got way more representation in the House Ooh. of Lords by numbers than they've ever got in the House of Commons. Now, that can't be right, can oh. it? Well, it isn't right, but this is, a, this is about the status of being a lord and being a baroness. And it is, without doubt, and I said, I used this word earlier, and uh, Mr. Michael has just used it as well, Michael has just used the word, corrupt. Yeah. This is our way of doing it in a gentlemanly way of being corrupt, and we're just as corrupt as any other nation. Yeah. This is our way of doing it the British way. And Boris has gone down in my books already. And within two months, he's done Huawei, he's going to do HS2, and now... He started to promote some of his chums and best mates up there already. Yeah, it's I know. Nonsense. He's got, he's got to start listening and stop this. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Good point, Gerard. Well made. Thank you very much indeed. Let's talk to Nigel, uh, who's up in North London. Hi, Nigel. Good morning. Uh, well, I want to talk about policing. I can't speak for the rest of the country because I, I work all around the 32 boroughs of London as a, right. as a news journalist covering crime and politics. I, I think clearly that, that, that listen to your former was it borough commander from Harringay, yes. I think it was. I think he's missed a lot, a lot of the problems. It's interesting about the terror attack. Well, the terror attack happened 250 yards away from the closed stress and police station. It doesn't mean to say they're going to be armed cops, they're going to rush out and, and, and help anyway, because, of course, they weren't. No. But I think what's interesting for me is policing has collapsed in London. Um, there, is, there are very little police running around the streets of London doing things. And as I mentioned to your producer when I, when I first called in, for those who don't know, every... Emergency response team officer in London, that's who, who, who patrol the streets on a day-to-day -day basis on a borough, have, I think, four hours a week to investigate crimes and do the paperwork. Well, that's a physical impossibility. They can't do that. And if there's an, an ERT officer listening, I wish he'd ring you up and tell you that. Yes, no, quite. I think what's interesting, uh, yesterday the Met Police put out two press releases to appeal for witnesses. One was for a robbery of a £115,000 watch, and one was for a serious violent assault in Chelsea. Well, guess what, Mike? The violent watch theft took place in June of last year. Right. And the 
the assault took place in May of last year, I think it was. So why would the police wait eight months, respectively, mm. to send out appeals for witnesses? Yeah. Well, and, I mean, I've, I've had constant uh, sort of um, letters, I've had constant tweets and, and, and emails from people basically saying, this is what happened to me. And in almost every case... The police have been, you know, below par. There was one uh, guy who wrote to me and said that his house got broken into. Uh, he called the police up on a Friday night, which is when it happened, and they said they couldn't get anyone around until Monday. So he, because, of course, he wanted to tidy the house up, tidied the house up and, um, and put everything back because it was all smashed around, uh, they came on Monday and said, oh, well, because you've now changed and moved everything, uh, we can't do any forensics. No, I know. And what's amazing at the moment, the Met Police have something called zero vision at the moment, for those who don't know. Yeah. They are completely hell-bent on catching people who speed and drive dangerously. Now, that's not a bad thing. Of course it isn't. But they haven't got a zero approach to burglary, mm. violent crime, antisocial behaviour, and people who you know, are being attacked on the streets. No. That's more important, I think, to somebody going 10 miles over the speed limit. Now, I'm not trying to be flippant, but in the reality of things... Burglary is a very invasive, nasty crime. It is. The person just recently jailed who not only burgled someone, but he raped and killed her. Yeah. No, it's absolutely shocking. But I, I don't know what the answer is, because what I can tell you, and you'll know this better than anyone, Nigel, is that the response time uh, and the ability of those uh, people who are in the armed response units is brilliant. I mean, they are fantastic. So all they've got to do is take that, say, as the gold standard of policing and make it work everywhere else. Well, I think also a man called Sadiq Khan, who's in charge of MOPAC, which is the Mayor's Office for Policing and Crime, needs to get out from behind his desk, meet Londoners, go to every murder crime scene in London and speak to people around yeah. because at the moment he doesn't. No, he needs to get off that uh, friendly radio station he goes to visit and actually go do some work. Nigel, thanks very much indeed. Chris is in Selsey. Hi, Chris. Yeah, hi, Mike. Yeah. Uh, one, one unintended consequence of all this is this. I joined the Met in 1973-74. Uh -huh. And I can tell you now that when I joined, the police, the Met Police in the West End was hopelessly corrupt. Was it? Now, you, you might think that it was all like, you know, Dixon and Dot Green and da-da. Yes, it was. OK, it was, you could stay out of it. Yeah. But, you know, if you'd have said anything time, you'd have fallen down the station stairs. OK. Now, now the thing about that is being is I know the standard, because I speak to old colleagues who are now training this lot mm. coming through, the standard is shocking. In fact, we've had criminals, people with criminal records, pitch up to be recruits. Really? Uh, I, oh, yeah. No, no, no. People with serious criminal records have been found at training school. Goodness me. I was me. told that last week. No, seriously. And, of course, the, the wages now are pretty abysmal. Yeah. What is going to happen is it's going to go full circle and, and it's going to be corrupt again. You know, because when I obviously that was very long time ago, but I can tell you now it was shocking. Are you talking sort of low level corruption or big high level I'm corruption? Because I, when I was a kid, right? From, I'm, yeah, I'm talking about proper moneyed corruption. Right. I'm not exaggerating. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, it was a long time ago now, but I had to stay out of it. And my father, who was a, a retired police officer, never warned me how bad it was. OK. Because I was, um, when I was a kid, I was a teenager, I worked in uh, a bakery up in Hampstead. And the Hampstead cops used to pop in on a daily basis, basically, for a beer uh, or for a cake or something like that. And it was very what you might call low-level, you know, sort of, not really oh, yeah, corruption, no, no. but it was no, kind of, you know, they'd be doing things they probably shouldn't have been doing. But they'd also be hiring themselves out as kind of, you know... Um, um, uh, basically bodyguards for things when they weren't working, that kind of stuff. I mean, co copying for bail. We used to take prisoners to court. And, and, and they used to say to me, oh, yeah, you use arrangements for bail. Yeah. And I'd say, what are you on about user arrangements for bail? And, and they would pay £50 for the officer not to object to bail. Really? 
No, that was, that was, that was quite common. Well, so and the cop would yeah. just pocket the money? Well, yeah, of course he would. Yeah. And, and yeah, you know, it was. I mean, I've got a lot more stories as well. But wow. I can tell you now that was quite commonplace then. That you know, they they would say that to you. Yeah, usual usual conditions. No, I don't do that. Yeah. But yeah, and wow. that was commonplace. Well, listen, you'll have to come uh, come and uh, come on again and tell us some more of those stories, more old war stories of the corrupt uh, police officers of the 1970s and the 1980s. I'm sure uh, no, nobody would be that surprised, but. Uh, they're just not doing their jobs properly at the moment, and that's what the story on the front page of the Times is basically saying, that the public have rumbled the police officers uh, in their own jargon because they're just not doing what it says on the tin. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. It's Friday, it's 12.33, and it's time for this. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Perrier Awards. You might think it's Oscar weekend this weekend, so the Perry Awards will have an extra bit of glamour and glitz about them, but I very much doubt that's the case, uh, because Con Mendes is here. Very good. Dressed up as ever uh, for bed. For bed? You look as if you get wear wearing your pyjamas. No, this is, a, this is a jumper. It's a jumper, is it? Yeah, from H&M. Oh, really? Yes. How much does it cost? Uh, I reckon £8. <laughs> you were done. And I would have got five off because I took a bag of recycling in. Recycling or like clothes, if what you take you, old what clothes, you give, what in, you give they give you a five pound really? voucher. Yeah, yeah. does it have to be their clothes, or does it matter? Not matter? No, it doesn't Any matter. Any clothes? No. Anyway, enough about them. So, did you take somebody else's clothes in, and get five off? Yeah, but I, with permission. Oh. Uh, should we begin? Please. Welcome to the Perry Awards. Thank you very much. This is where we go back over the past week of the so-called so Independent called. Republic of Mike Graham and choose our favourite moments. Yes. And here it is: the first Perry Awards after we've left. The EU, yes. uh, very much. Well the done. list for the real people have been cruelly overlooked mm. in uh, for a peerage this week. So we've what? got lots to get, you know, for a peerage. So we'll just read that sentence again. No. Uh, lots to get through, so let's begin. Yes, get on with it. Uh, as is tradition, mm. Mike, the first pair goes to you. Splendid. You've won it before and no doubt you'll win it again. It's impression of the week for your take on Arkwright yes. from Open All Hours. Yes, the first time since, uh, since you tried to poison me last week uh, at the Ivy Club. And it didn't work. It didn't, I'm You're back. too strong, mate. Yeah, too you strong. Through. You'll have to put a higher... Pup. Percentage of the potion <laughs> into the drink. I don't know what happened to me there. I think it's something to do with Will Geddes. Yeah. Puts me into a right old spin. It's not just you stumbling, you do actually sound like Ronnie Barker do, yeah. doing that character. Well, I think because it started, I thought I might as well go the whole you know, upright <laughs> yeah, and make it sound as if I was doing it deliberately. Yeah. Which, of course, uh, I wasn't. No. Uh, earlier on in the week, you were joined by Nick McDermott, the health editor from The Sun. Oh, yeah. Uh, you're a big fan of him? Yeah, I love him. Yeah, I love him a lot. Oh, well. Uh, this begs to differ. You've won. Wrong name or the week. Ah. Too many people in there already. We'll also talk to Dick McDermott, who's health, uh, Nick McDermott, I should say, health editor at The Sun. What's going on with the sound? Uh, it's because um, we didn't record it at the time, so it's uh, from a different source. Unbelievable. Well, so uh, shoddy. Talk to um, Just shoddy. Well, I mean, you've completely reverse ferreted the Perry Award. Now, you should get it for playing that out in such no, poor quality. No, 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 no. Yes, I think no, so. No, You're getting no, a lot of, no, I'm getting no. a lot of nods from behind the glass, really? I'm afraid. Well, I'm afraid you, you made a, dropped a major... Well, it's actually one of theirs' mistakes. Right, so, OK. Um, there we go. Barrister and former MP Jerry Hayes yes. uh, won the Perry Award for showing despair of the week. You know, knife-crazed terrorists yes. who would kill... Yes. Even knowing yes. that they're going to be yes. killed doing yes. it, yes. they're and, a different. And, and, they should be in a different category. Not, 
They are in a different category. <laughs> <laughs> he was getting quite wound up, old Jerry, wasn't he? He was, yeah. Unusual uh, for him. <laughs> yeah. Uh, leader of the Tories in the Greater London Authority, Susan Hall popped in oh, yes. uh, this week. Uh, she won the Perrier for Worst Assumption of the Week. Mm. By completely, like, basically bicycling over the, uh, the, the main thoroughfare. Do you bicycle? No. <laughs> <laughs> I was complaining about the bicycle lanes, <laughs> yeah, I know. which I thought was fairly obvious. Yeah, never mind. Never mind. Uh, I mean, I have bicycled. I mean, yeah, I mean, the, the we, all, we all have, you know, yeah. once, once you ride a bike, you know. Uh, back to you, Mike. Uh, one thing you're very good at is really explaining stories yes. so that simple people like myself can really get a full understanding. Here's an example with your clarification of the week. This was on the story that they were apparently uh, sending out the Royal Protection Officers to go and get errands for them. I know. Now that we are paying them to cover them in Canada, a foreign country. Thanks very much for that. Cover them in Canada. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. I, I wasn't sure whether Canada was in Kent or a foreign country, so thanks very much yeah, for your well, help with you that. Know, if you want me to give you any more information about stuff you don't know, we'll be here all day. Great, perfect. Uh, now over to The <laughs> Breakfast Show, where Health Secretary Matt Hancock gives our record-breaking station mm. the creepiest endorsement of the week. That's a, that's a policy challenge that we've got to grapple with. Uh, look, I think that I, I love talk radio. Ooh, he, loves he loves it. Talk How radio. do you love talk he radio? He loves man? talk radio. <laughs> that is a bit creepy. He didn't say that to me, though. No, Luckily. that was to Julia Hartley, but I yeah. did say it was on The Breakfast Show. Yeah. Uh, back to you again, yes. Mike. Uh, the opening gambit from Wednesday's show won you the sentence of the week. Talk radio. Loads of, uh, of, of, there, loads of things for us to do this morning. My apologies to you as I was trying to get all those words into one sentence. Uh, they came out strangely mangled. However, they did uh, that somehow. That was literally the first sentence I know. you said on the show. I know. Oh, great start. Excellent. Caller Mary in Hemel Hempstead wins the Perrier for cheekiest laugh. Put BBC Four on, right? They had this show uh, where Pete was called Still Life, where a load of people all over the country were painting a naked a man. Or a naked man's buttocks, should I say. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's quite a good laugh, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, good laugh. Well done. Uh, Colonel Richard Kemp now, he was a guest on the show. Clearly a big fan of yours, Mike, yeah. as he wins the Perrier for using the contagious vocab of the week. Good morning. Hard to believe this one, isn't it? Yeah, well, not really. It's, it's, it's pretty standard, as you say. It's a further example of the plankery we see on a daily basis. See, the, the word plank is now getting quite large uh, circulation. It's catching, it is catching. It? Yes. Plank of the week again, of course, on Tuesday. Yeah. Uh, if you haven't seen this week's yet, you can find it on YouTube. Yes, absolutely. Thank you very much. Um, who has won the Perrier for tweeting the week? Uh, tweet of the week, sorry. Uh, let's find out. Mm. Here's one um, uh, from uh, uh, Colby. Uh, Colby for Brexit. Did somebody say capture the flag? Uh, so I don't know if somebody did say that. <laughs> <laughs> no, no idea. idea what any well, of that do you know what about? happens in uh, in what we call social media terms? Is yes. when you start reading something out and you suddenly think, I'm not sure if there's code for something, and maybe oh, I shouldn't I be reading it out. And so you start to kind of then think, this person's name looks a little bit dodgy. Yeah, it's a little bit like the names that they get at the end of clips of the week on Talksport. They basically get some oh, yeah, these fake, yeah, names, yeah, fake names, and if yeah. they fall for the wrong one. They could say something quite rude. <laughs> yes. Uh, back to the breakfast show now, if you yes. will go, where Andrew Nicholl from the Scottish Sun wins illness of the week. Sounds like he's a, a predatory to me. Some of these text messages um, have quite a sinister ring to them. 
Lovely. That's brilliant. Absolutely lovely. <laughs> I think I know him as well. Andy, Andy Nichol. Yeah, I think from the so. Scottish Sun. Yeah, I do, good, yeah. Good, wonderful. Uh, another man Hope you know. he gets better. John Rental. <laughs> uh, John Rental uh, wins the barrier for telling us about the job description of the week. Mm. And he, he once actually punched John Sargent in the stomach, didn't he? <laughs> I don't remember. Oh, he that. did, yeah. No, he, there's, yeah, fo- I mean... there's, there's actually footage of that. It's hilarious. Right, but, I mean, you know, that's, that, that is the job of a good press officer. Is it really? Mm, what, punching people <laughs> Punch, in the stomach? Well, no, J- John Sargent, apparently, <laughs> just specifically. Yes, it is. If you find it, it's probably knocking about on YouTube somewhere. It's quite funny. OK, yeah, I do. Who was it again who punched him? Uh, Bernard Ingham, yes. who used to be Mark Thatcher's yeah, press secretary. I will be Googling that uh, later once Talk Radio um, continues. Uh, I thought you were going to say once Talk Radio fires you. <laughs> uh, well, that will never happen. Really? Uh, don't, Don't tempt me. <laughs> Mike, you share a great anecdote Thank you. I don't want to give you this now because it's a compliment <laughs> you win story of the week I once doorstep Burt Reynolds who, who had a house uh, what? Uh, in a place called Jupiter Island uh, but I couldn't doorstep it from, yes. the, from the front of the, of, the, of the house because it was on a, bi- a massive busy road and he was behind yeah. a big wall so we had to doorstep him from the back of the house in a boat so I basically was on a boat yes. for an entire week drinking beer eating Subway sandwiches and watching for Burt Reynolds who apparently wasn't even there it's true. <laughs> Absolutely true. Wonderful. Yeah, I want it was that great, job as well. One of the well. great jobs. Though. I want you that job. It. I'm going to take that job after I think the we also did. I think, we, I think the guy who we chartered the boat from, we mm. also had some fishing. I think we did a bit of fishing as well. We <laughs> oh, nice. Fishing for stories. Fishing uh, for stories. Now, Mike, you and all the listeners will undoubtedly remember earlier in the week when Johnny Showbiz, our showbiz editor, shared a topless picture of himself yes. on social media. To I'm find, sorry to say I saw that. To finally kick off a conversation about body confidence for men. It was mm. big. It was very big. Uh, well, it clearly has had an impact as, Mike, you win the Perrier for body confidence of the week. Helena Nicklin's going to come in as well. Uh, she, of course, is our favourite wine connoisseur. Uh, she's not bringing wine today, though. She's bringing gin. So we'll have a bit of a celebration with her uh, on account of our great figures. So... Yeah, we do all have great, great figures. figures. Yes, yeah. well, it's very true. Yeah. We did have some great figures this week. I'm yes, not sure if they'll yeah. be the same next week. No, we'll have to see mm. after the celebrations. Yeah. Uh, and finally, Helena Nicklin, who we just heard from the Free Drinkers, wins the Perrier for Question of the Week. Which would, would be a neat trick. Absolutely. I wonder what milk, that would taste like, actually. Have milked an acorn? I've not milked an acorn, Helena. On, not sorry. Yet. Yeah, that didn't sound right, did no, it? No, it didn't at all. That's it for the Perrier Awards. Well there will done. be more with Marta next week. The Perrier Awards on Talk Radio. Talk Radio across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB, online, or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. I chose Columbus State because it is the logical choice to reach my goals debt-free. The Honors Program gives me access to opportunities and scholarships that will help me when I transfer to a four-year university. Now I'm avoiding student loans and following my passion to be a Buckeye and build a career in public service. 